thank you for tuning in. This is the Emerging Markets Enthusiast Podcast, and I'm Patrick Alex, your host. On the show, we will be exploring the still and the leverage opportunities of entrepreneurship in emerging markets. We will be talking to founders, venture capitalists, ecosystem builders, and policymakers. I hope you enjoy the session, and let's dive right in. Hi, everybody. This is Patrick Alex from the Emerging Markets Enthusiast Podcast, and we are back with another episode. This time, I've got the great pleasure to have one of the leading ad tech entrepreneurs of the Latam ecosystem with me, Marco Fishburn, who is CEO and co-founder of leading ad tech Descomplica. Marco, it's a great pleasure having you on to the show. No, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. It's a great pleasure to be here. And every time we have the opportunity to talk about Descomplica and especially talk about online education, it's fun and a great pleasure for us. Absolutely. And we're certainly going to dive into all these aspects. But before diving into that, I wanted to start off a bit on your personal journey. How did you actually make your way into the world of entrepreneurship and startups and how did then Descomplica came into being actually? That's a fun question. I started, well, I am an engineer, so I'm a production engineering. So I always liked processes and a little bit of business, but I started teaching pretty, pretty young. I come from a very low income family. So I started teaching at 17 as a kind of a source of income. And then I grew more and more fond of teaching and the power of the classroom and the way you can really, really change someone else's lives by getting them to be ready for something important in their lives. So it came to a point in my life where I said, okay, I really want to scale this. I really want to take everything I know from engineering, take everything I know from within uh, education institutions and within the classroom and really scale that out as much as we can. So then a little bit of engineering, a little bit of education in my background came to a point where it made total sense to start properly set up uh, an ad tech company. So that's how those, those two things uh, got together. And that's, that's where the dream of scaling education started. You certainly had a really exciting journey there and that's complete. I mean, for, for the ones that don't know, we, we're going to talk a bit, bit more about the company, but you raised the largest ad tech round a couple of months back in the region of 84 million, if I'm not mistaken, with really leading global investors and also some, some celebrities on there, uh, the edge, if I'm not mistaken. So it's always an interesting mix there. And I, I was wondering, you were stating there that uh, you want to become the largest university in Brazil. So I was wondering with that round you've closed and the recent acquisition you've, you've announced, how close are you getting to that goal? Well, we, that, that, that's, a, that's a great question. We are right now, as of today, although pretty young and we're only doing higher education for, for around two years, we are already one of the largest post-grad solution providers in Brazil, period, in just a little bit over 18 months of work. And we're and we already pretty close to reaching 5,000 undergrad students. In 2021, we are already a meaningful higher education company in the country, in the region, and we expect to keep growing as fast as we are. So let me just take a step back into what's the strategy and, and how we expect to, to tackle those issues. So, so first and foremost, I, I don't want to talk about a lot about what's broken in education, but I want to focus on a couple of specific, very specific points. It's very easy for us as adults to look back and see that we have been a part of several education institutions. You went to one elementary school, another one middle school, and then high school, a third one. And then we probably went to some test prep solution provider, undergrad, postgrad, 
when you talk about corporate training, then you go into three, five, ten different institutions. And then you look back and you feel like none of them really knows you really well, right? So the idea that an education institution should be able to know you really well and personalize the experience and drive the experience catered to you, it's very important for us. So in one hand, we have to be extremely data-driven. What are, your, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What do you really like? What you don't like at all? What are your personal preferences in terms of the style and the timing of education? We have to be extremely data-driven on that, but that's not all. We're also building a continuous adjacent verticals in education. We don't see any good reason for you to keep jumping from institution to institution every couple of years or every three years, or maybe sometimes every couple of months, depending on what you were learning. So the idea to be, in one hand, extremely data-driven, and in the other hand, be able to build adjacent verticals and build this very long lifetime. And of course, from the kind of the business viewpoint, very long lifetime value as well. We don't want to work with students for two or six months or not even six years. We want to work with them for 15, 20, 25, 30 years. So the strategy is to really create this online education company where we can follow your personal journey, not for months, but for decades. So what we're doing really different is we're building this kind of vertically integrated company where we own pedagogy, own the production company, own the technology, of course, and the customer acquisition to be able to follow your journey, to be able to start working with you when you are 13, 14, 15, maybe a little bit older, 17, 18, and then take you all the way to 30, 35, 40, all the way to kind of really helping you all the way building your career over time. So this is, this is absolutely different. This is a completely different value proposition. And by building those adjacent verticals, we have been able to see already, although we're just doing undergrad and postgrad for less than two years, well, undergrad for a little bit over one year and postgrad less than two, uh, we have been able to see that the bulk of all students taking now undergrad with us, they were already students in the task prep business, in the business that came before. So by building those adjacent verticals, we, we can follow your journey, but we can also create a business where the cost of acquisition gets lower and lower over time because we are taking you throughout this journey. So we were by mid 2020, already by far the largest provider in task prep in Brazil. And then we built the undergrad and postgrad programs. Undergrad, we started last year with just a thousand students. Now we just pretty close to grow 5x year over year. 5,000 students now we expect to end the year with 10,000 students. So the idea is to we'll get there to grow 10x year over year. Postgrad, we started last year with pretty much nothing. We ended last year with 30,000 students. Now we have around 60,000 students already doubled and we expect to close the year with 100,000 students. So at a little bit over 3x year over year in postgrad. So that's how we are building and how we are positioning ourselves differently from the kind of the average education provider, not just offline, but also online. 
That's very remarkable what you're saying there. And actually, I've got a great follow-up question there from uh, one of your investors, Antoine uh, Golako of, of Valor, who was uh, wondering if we could ask you that question, which is very fitting given the transition you've made, right, from being specialized on test prep over to a full online university. How was that shift like? How did you build up those adjacent services we are talking about? Because it's obviously uh, an entirely different scale, also complexity of the business to build out those adjacent services and ultimately engage the customer throughout his lifetime, right? This is a great question. And once we decided as a board, and for sure, including Antoine, that it made sense to follow that strategy and to build adjacent verticals, then the big question is, okay, so let's take a step back and go to the drawing board and understand which capabilities do we have to build to make this work over time. And then the capability building immediately follows the continuous adjacent expansion strategy. So I can give you a few examples. So number one, regulatory aspects. As a test prep company, we didn't have the capability to work with the re regulatory aspects of being an undergrad and postgrad company. So let's build from scratch. What is the best academic director we can find? Let's hire. What's the best legal regulatory team that we can build? Let's build it. It wasn't a coincidence that we were able to, by building that spectacular, phenomenal team, we were able to, in record time, to build from scratch and be accredited as the first online education institution in Brazil with maximum score coming from the Minister of Education. We have a score five out of five, which for a new universe, for a new college is kind of unheard of. So that's about the capability. So let's talk about customer success and the capability to build the customer success teams to follow the user's journey. So once we were still focused in Test prep, it's a nine-month to 12-month preparation. So it's one kind of customer success. So let's onboard you in February, and then you have to take a test in November. Customer success is super important, but it's a shorter run. It's a few months. Once we got the idea, okay, now we're going to have undergrad students that are going to stay with us for not for nine months, but for four years, what are the capabilities to be able to follow do customer success thoroughly for years, not months. So let's build the teams. Let's make sure we have the right team. We have the, the right hirings. We have the right technology. Then let's talk about scale. One thing is doing this at a smaller scale, starting post-grad with 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 students. Now we're more than 60,000 post-grad students that are counting on us to get a better job, to get, to get a promotion, to change their career. So it's a different kind of customer success, it's a different kind of success, actually. So let's make sure we adjust the metrics. Let's make, sure, let's make sure we adjust the targets. Let's make sure we build the team and the build the capability. And then those are kind of easy to understand regulatory and customer success examples, but there's also the question of scale. So more, it's not just doing the same for 10 times more students. 10 times more students, it's not about doing the same thing. It's also about scalability. It's also about automation. It's also about scalability in talent acquisition. If you keep doing whatever you are doing the way we are doing now, how many tutors will we need? Is it possible to have that many tutors in the country? What we need to automate, how much AI can be used to scale the processes that we have. So in one hand is the pure capability building based on new verticals and new challenges, 
And in the other hand, uh, it's also in one way capability building, but not because of the vertical or geography or the, the kind of student, but because of the scale. Scale brings demand for automation, AI, and capability building. So those things were very important building blocks that we had to structure, not after we launched undergrad and postgrad, but in parallel to the accreditation process and the authorization process. Very interesting. Perhaps you could double click on that part of, of automating that and, and scaling and ad tech. Ad tech historically, if, if one talks to investors, has been sometimes a bit frowned upon. How do you scale ad tech? How to uh, bring down a customer acquisition cost, right? And so it would be really interesting to have a bit your take on that and tips for other ad tech entrepreneurs that might be listening. How can you actually achieve that scalability? First, you have to make sure what are you scaling? So you, you need to have a framework to automate and scale things that you understand. Number one are strategic to the business, the number two can be scaled via automation and AI. I'll take a step back. I don't want to talk too much about pedagogy, but I think it's important to talk a little bit about pedagogy. This is this is an ad tech, an education technology company. And sometimes there's a lot of education and not a lot of technology in the company. And sometimes that's the other way around. A lot of technology and not a lot of pedagogy in the company. So it's important to try to strike a good balance. So let, let me take you to the way we see pedagogy and the way we say we we see the pedagogy evolving and what we are automating and, and, and scaling. It's very important for us, number one, to measure how do you feel while you are consuming the content? Are you happy? Are you sad? Are you lost? How do you feel? As a teacher, I understand that if you are not feeling right and if you're not excited about learning, my job as a teacher will be much, much harder. So number one, how do you feel? How do you measure that? How do you scale? How do we scale that measurement? Number two, what and how do you consume content? And then we can we have to measure that and have to adjust for that. And then last but not least, but it's last, not first, is how do you perform? There's a common pitfall, which is focusing on performance, but not taking a step back to say what's behind it. So what's behind performance is usually content consumption. And what's behind content consumption, it's usually your mood. How do you feel about that? Our idea was to be able to automate, to track automatically and to personalize every single step of the way. So number one, we have reactions. It's though, Sometimes those are simple things, but you have to build them. <laughs> we have the reactions in every single touch point, every single touch point with content. I, I want you to click. Those are very simple emojis saying, I'm excited about this. I'm lost. I'm angry. I need help. So it's just as simple as clicking that emoji as the class goes on. And then we can do on the aggregates. Is there a lot of students saying they are frustrated about this lesson? We have to take a look at this lesson. But we can also take a look individually. If you said you were frustrated, well, maybe we can recommend a different teacher. Or maybe we can recommend a more simple take on that subject. And then you can start on the fundamentals and then move forward. So both on the aggregate and individually, we use reactions to see how do you feel about it and what we need to adjust from the content standpoint and from a personalization standpoint, what we can recommend to you. And then after that, we can move forward to what are you consuming? 
Are you coming every day or are you coming twice per week? It's fine. You can adjust your scheduling, but your schedule needs to be consistent and needs to work for you. So what's going to be your schedule? Should we put together a schedule with you? So tell me more about you. What do you need? What are your strengths and weaknesses? When is the test? Is it a test that you're going to take or are you getting ready to get a promotion? And if you take a, if you do a post-grad, you can imagine by the end of the year, you're going to get a promotion. So how are you, are we going to organize your agenda, your schedule? And this is something very intuitive. If I ask you, Patrick, what are you going to do tomorrow, 2 p.m.? You're probably going to take a look at your calendar, right? Of course. <laughs> so, but, but that's what we should be doing as a higher education institution as well. We have to embed education in your calendar to make sure you will be able, according to your goals, to consume all the content that you need to consume in your schedule, in your agenda. And then last but not least, we have weekly exercises and monthly exercises and mock tests and simulations, simulations of everything you can imagine from simulation of a test prep to simulation of an interview. So now we can get to performance and then we can build performance dashboards on your weekly assessments, monthly assessments, and all the mock tests and simulations that we run. And then everything that I mentioned works today in Descomplica at scale. So automated reactions, automated dashboards, and, and, and automated personalization engines to make sure we understand what's best for you. And we can, embedded in the learning management system, provide better pathways. Tremendous. Re really remarkable how you felt this. Yeah, it's not just, just saying let's automate things. It's automate what? So let's automate all the drivers. Let's automate all the processes that leads us to know how do you feel, know what you were consuming, know how you are performing. As much as we can automate those, that decision-making and that personalization, the better. Remarkable. And I feel it's very much towards the user experience, right? Always serving best your end customer, optimizing that experience, I assume, is based on that. Absolutely. Those are, in the end of the day, product managers and product owners that have, of course, one eye uh, on the business and how we have to grow the business and can grow and should grow because as we grow the business, we are actually offering education to more people. So it's obviously a, a double bottom line. But the role of the product owner, the product manager, is also to always think about what's best for the student. This is very interesting. And I wanted to switch gears a bit and talking about the recent acquisition you announced with Uni America and how that came into being, how that ties to your long-term strategy of building uh, the largest uh, online university in, in Brazil and Latam. How did that M&A actually come, come into place, if you can elaborate some on that, and, and how is it going to fit into the long-term strategy of the company? We have been talking about this for quite some time. When we finished our fundraising process earlier this year, Uh, we already knew at the board level that it makes a ton of sense to execute this kind of acquisition as an university center. I don't want to bother you too much about the regulatory aspects of education in Brazil, but you can. there are three kinds of entities in Brazil. We were a college, we acquired an university center. And by being an university center now, after the acquisition, the idea is we can launch courses faster. Uh, we can launch more courses and we don't have any kind of cap for growth. As a college, there is a few hurdles and frictions on how fast you can launch courses, how big you can grow, and how fast you can grow. 
So the idea was let's acquire a company that will help us launch more courses a lot faster. So to give you a clear example, until the acquisition, we had four degrees in undergrad. After the acquisition, we immediately jumped from four degrees to 22 degrees. So we immediately launched 18 new degrees growing from four to 22. On top of that, there's no limits of how many students we can, we can have. There's also a couple of regulatory aspects that by running and by executing the acquisition, we now can run customer acquisition at a much larger pace and scale. But in the end of the day, it's also very important, not necessarily the final business objective, but where it started. So what we did was, okay, we, we have to find a company that culturally first makes sense. So what's the founder? Who's the management team? What do they think about pedagogy? How they think about scaling online education? And uh, there are for sure many targets that we could conceptually find to achieve the business goals and to make sure the regulatory aspects were all being taken care of. Having said that, it's very important for us to get to a point where we can clearly say those decisions are also culturally first, business second decisions. So is the management team, the right management team, do we trust them to keep doing whatever they are doing? Do, do we love their vision? Are we excited about this online education? Are we excited about their vision for the future of online education? Are we excited about with the way they operate an online education business over the last few years? So the answer for us was a sounding yes, yes, yes. We are extremely excited about their pedagogical vision. We really trust their team to keep running the local operations the way they have been running. And we really like the idea of having them as partners. And if all those things really and clearly falls into place, awesome. Now we can make sure we get the business targets to work. But it's really a culture first, value first approach to the, the, the ultimate decision making. But then getting back to the business, it immediately translates into faster growth. So we were able to launch courses, new degrees faster, both I, I give you the example with undergrad, but that's the same with postgrad. And it's the kind of acquisition, which is the right kind for a young startup, which is an acquisition that helps you grow faster. It's not, we're not buying revenue, we're not buying EBITDA, we're not buying students, we're not consolidating the markets. It's an acquisition that is an enabler and a trigger for even faster growth. Really interesting, and the points you you made there answer some of the follow follow up questions I had actually, and and that you brought up culture right away is, is certainly when when we talk about the break moments of uh, an acquisition, if they're succeeding or not, then often culture comes into play. And I'm I'm wondering, you were saying obviously there was a great culture flip between Descomplica and Uni America, but how do you evaluate that actually beforehand? How can you know before actually merging and then meeting the team uh, every day and 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 seeing the cultures actually merge and creating maybe a new culture. What's your take on that aspect of culture in general? You have to spend time with the people. It's, it's extremely hard to know actually really beforehand 
you have to spend time with the targets. We have to spend time during our targets. They're human beings, right? So we have to spend time with the human beings. So they were based in a different state in the country. We went there several times. We spent a lot of time with them. We spent a lot of time trying to understand their vision because in the end of the day, it's a pitch. So we needed to be extremely excited about their vision on what should be the future for online education. There, there's no, Honestly, unfortunately, there are no shortcuts. I would love to say, okay, but this is the playbook. This is the shortcut. And you can have, and I think there are playbooks and shortcuts when you are transactionally consolidating the markets. If you are transactionally, it's a series of transactions to consolidate the market. So this is the size we are. This is the size we want to be. That's the size of the company we want to acquire. Needs to have this and that in place, the minimum profitability and the gross margins and, and this and that, and that's it. And then you can have an m team just to run the process. And then you can trust the m team to run a healthy process of consolidation. And I think it could work in that realm, in that space with that mindset. That's not our case. So we weren't doing that. So that's actually the other way around. So it starts with, okay, what are the most exciting founders in the space? What is the What are the most exciting different visions for how a higher educational institution should approach education and should grow and should tackle big uh, educational problems? And by the way, once we have the visions, let's meet the people. Let's see who's behind the vision. And then after that, if the numbers are there, awesome. Then we can move forward. But we shouldn't care that much about the numbers if you don't have a lot of trust in the execution team and the vision. I would love to have a shortcut and a, and, and a hack, but it uh, should be spend a lot of time assessing cultural fits. Cultural fit is not just assessed in a business meeting. It's also assessed by flying together. It's also assessed by having lunch, by having dinner. It's also assessed by getting to know the family a little bit. Not too much, but a little bit. So those are not hacks. Those are not shortcuts, but those are mandatory pieces of figuring out uh, cultural fit. Tremendous points there. So valuable, I'm sure, for all the founders that are listening onto the episode. And also, I wanted to ask you on, on a different angle also, uh, when are you actually ready for an acquisition? Apart from having the capital, right, which you, you had the financing round and, and that made all the sense. But when do you know that we can actually incorporate another company and having that increased complexity into the operations? When do you say, okay, this is the right time, we have to do it? As a startup, It's okay for you to do it if you're not ready. <laughs> when, when, we, when we talked about the minimum viable products and we talk about launching and push to production and we talk about speed, it's fine if you're not fully ready. It's fine. When you change your mindset from let's do this and we will figure it out to a different mindset where mm, we're not ready, we don't have the experience to do it, so let's wait. That's the moment where you stopped being a startup and you became a company. There's nothing bad about being that, but it's different. And the mindset should be different. So, of course, you have to build the capability, and you should, 
what do we need to do that? But you also should be able to figure that out over time as you do it. Everybody, all of us, myself included, for sure. We usually overestimate experience and underestimate motivation. That's wrong. <laughs> and that's why startups can grow so fast, because everybody overestimates experience and underestimate motivation. So that's why a startup, which is a group with extremely high motivated executives, can do as much as we can because we are extremely motivated, not because we, we are super experienced in every single piece of what makes a large company a large company. So it's a two-piece answer to your question. So number one, you should not feel ready. You should feel you should do it, but you should not feel ready. It's good not to be ready. But when you should do it, and then it becomes more commoditized theory on M&A. You should do it because you are number one and it makes sense to buy number two and then say, okay, I own the market. Maybe that's a good acquisition. Maybe it's capability building. It's like, okay, we really need to do this using, I'm going to give you any, any example, using a machine learning for whatever. But this is, we don't have this in our DNA. Okay, so let's let's acquire a company that deeply understands that acquihirings are famous and, and there's a reason to be famous. If you have the opportunity to build a capability by acquiring a company, it for sure speeds up the process. Or you can go into a new, a new vertical, a new geography. Okay, we, we want to expand internationally, but we are only doing one geography, we want to do another one. Maybe an acquisition should be, a, should be a good first step for international expansion. So I don't want to sound theoretical here, but, but there are three to five reasons. I mentioned three, but there are more. So there are three to five reasons why an M&A makes sense. Those are all, in theory, you can read the books. But if we're talking about entrepreneurship and startups, it's about the vision. What's your vision for growth? And does an acquisition fit your vision for growth? Then you should do it. If you are not ready, you should definitely start figuring out. <laughs> no, very, very strong points there. And that nicely segues into, into my next question on how you have, have evolved as a, as a leader during that journey of scaling Das Complica. Because I, I always admire scale-up entrepreneurs of starting at, with a founding team of three maybe having then a team of 10. And as you're staying in the company, obviously your team grows, the, the company changes and you have to grow as a leader. How was that experience for you? As a production engineer and as a guy that likes standards, processes and stuff like that, that growth is fairly standardized. I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, it's not. I can assure you that it takes a lot of effort, But it's fairly standardized. You can talk to a coach or you can read books or you, can, you will be able to see a path going from doing to leading teams to leading leaders. So being able to get used to the idea that you're not going to be able to do everything and then you start to lead the execution. And then after some time, you're not going to be even leading the execution. So you go from doing to leading the execution to leading someone that leads the execution. And although this is fairly standardized and this is fairly, you can read this anywhere, it's a very tough process and it's, a, it's not a linear path. And you also have to feel 
used to the idea that it's not going to be a linear path. And it's also very important to be very transparent with the team. And any team working in a startup closer to founders and founding team and co-founders, it is a little bit different. It is a little bit different. And everybody should be very honest and very transparent about how not linear that growth is going to be. So there's a little bit of a pendulum there. So from growing too much in execution, okay, I need to let the team do a little bit more. And then the pendulum goes all the way to the other side. I feel mm, I'm too far away. And then when you try to solve for that, you get too close again. And then it starts bothering a little bit people. And then, no, no, this is not the right spot. This is not the sweet spot. Let that just one more time. This is a continuous, non-linear process of doing, leading who does, leading who leads who's doing. <laughs> That's tough. That's not simple. And that's just one aspect of it. At a larger organization, how do you communicate? It's different to communicate with 10 people in a, in a room or 100 people in a small office or 1,000 people in several different offices. So your style of communication, the scope of your communication, the, the frequency, the clarity. So number one, the way you lead and how you advance. Number two, communication, important. Number three, fundraising. It's absolutely different. Raise a million dollars in a seed round or $10 million in a seed round and raise $200 million in a series C, D, or E. It's fundamentally different. Uh, so fundraising gets trickier. It is a little bit different. And it's the role and the job of the founder, right? So communications, leadership, fundraising, talent acquisition. When you start, you hire the best people you can in a smaller environment. Over time, you are directly involved in the hiring of your direct reports. And you start hiring over time people a lot more experienced than you are. And a lot more senior than you are. Because you want that experience as well. It's not all about motivation. We talked about not underestimating motivation and not overestimating experience, but I'm not saying at all that experience doesn't count. And how do you start building this mix of senior leaders in the company and how to lead those senior executives over time? It's also a very tricky path. So I'm going to stop there. I think I give you a, a few struggles and those are for sure And I can say you, honestly, part of my personal struggles, and I think, honestly, also part of most of the struggles from the other founders that I know. As you said, it's a process and one has to tweak, maybe pivot on the way. It's, it's part of the founder journey and you have to be flexible and, and humble to evolve fully with the company. And, and that's probably one of the greatest challenges as you, as you get more successful. You touched on a great point. Thank you that I actually didn't say, but you touched on a great point is to be extremely humble or at least humble enough to understand that every new cycle is a completely new cycle. So your, your skills as a founder, CEO, in a kind of a super early stage environment are not the skills you need for a faster scale up, are not the skills you need to actually be able to structure 
a larger company with much larger ambition demands from you to be at least humble enough to realize what's missing, what's the gap, and then work with the board, work with the coach, work with many different, in my case, also Endeavor, I can clearly and easily say, work with other institutions that help entrepreneurs, work with Endeavor, work with the coach, work with the boards to make sure you can, you can make it formal. What are the missing points? What are the gaps? What I should be working on as a founder CEO become a better founder CEO. Brilliant points there. We're almost at the end of the podcast, but um, before moving into the fast speed round of questions, I wanted to ask you, what is next for this Complica? Any next milestones you can share with the audience? I understand there's a lot to be done that's already mapped in the vision and execution mode. I understand, and I have been talking a lot about this within the company and with the, the executives and, and, and everybody that works with us and helping and helps us build the company. Now it's about execution. We built the adjacent verticals. We work with high school, test prep, undergrad, postgrad. We are unbundling both postgrad and undergrad into shorter non-degree courses because not everybody needs to be willing to do a four-year degree or a one-year postgrad degree. It's fine if you want to take just a month to, to educate yourself for, for upskilling. So we are huge believers in moving from pure education to get closer and closer to HR, learning and development, reskilling and upskilling. So we're getting really, really close with several different HR uh, departments and several different companies to really get education close to HR and especially learning and development. There's a lot to be executed there, to be adjusted there as we unbundle all the undergrad and postgrad programs into shorter non-degree programs, both B, both B2C and B2B, working with the HRs. So there's a lot to be executed there to be able to build this long lifetime and long lifetime value. So the next Horizon 1, 12 months, it's all about executing the plan. We have a strategy. We were able to finance that strategy with amazing investors backing us up in our vision and our strategy. We were able to quickly hire the team. We grew, we grew our team really fast in the, in the last few months to more than a thousand people now coming from a little bit over 300 people before at the fundraise. So we grew the team fast. Now that we have the strategy, now that we have the funding and now that we have been able to grow the team and the talent to execute, let's make it happen. Absolutely. Looking forward to see that happening. And the company certainly has so much tremendous potential there in really revolutionizing the uh, education environment in, in LATAM and potentially uh, the whole world. Really looking forward to seeing that on the sidelines. And before we wrap up, there's three fast speed questions I'm asking everyone on the podcast. Would you be ready for those three questions? Let's go. Awesome. First one, real quick, who is an entrepreneur you admire and why? That's a great question. I don't want to. I don't want to give you one fancy name that everybody likes. The entrepreneur that I admire is the is the human being that really is willing to give up things to chase not a dream. I don't want to say chase a dream. I want to say chase a vision. And and usually the answer is someone famous, someone that everybody knows, or someone very close to me. But what I admire is the entrepreneur that's saying, I have a vision for a world that doesn't exist. And I'm willing to give up a few things to make sure 
that world that doesn't exist, exists only in my mind, is going to exist. That's the entrepreneur I really admire. The dreamers, the innovators, and the ones that, that ultimately make it happen. Absolutely. Fantastic. Second question. In, in one phrase, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Hire slow, fire fast. That is the best piece of advice I received. Sometimes you tend to be the opposite. We try to hire as fast as we can. And then after we see it's not working, we keep pushing and trying to make it work. As a super fast-paced startup entrepreneur, you know that something that you don't have is time. So take a little bit of more time to make sure there's a higher likelihood that the hiring is going to happen and it's going to it's going to be successful. And if you realize it's not working, it's extremely unlikely for a startup to be able to course correct to make something that it's not working to make it work extremely not impossible but extremely unlikely great point awesome so last question then three key words that describe a successful business in your opinion vision speed and i'm trying to find a, a word that encapsulates the idea that you should deeply care about the quality of your products so i'm going to say products i don't want to say quality i want to say products so it's vision speed product Awesome. So that's a wrap. Now we're at the end of the podcast. Is there anything else you would like to, to share on your end before we wrap up? No, honestly, it was a fun conversation. We were able to talk about a few things that are important for us. It's also very important to be useful to, to the ones listening to it. The idea here is talk about education and talk in a fun, engaging way. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope we, we achieved that. And it was really a pleasure having you on the show. It was fun. Lots of content there to dissect. And thanks again for making the time to join us. Mm -hmm.